Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. This podcast is a proud member of Parents on Demand, a network of high-quality shows for families just like yours. Download our free network app on Apple and Android and listen to your favorite episodes on the go. You are listening to Fertile Minds Radio, Episode 59, Effortless IVF. Welcome back. I'm your host, Hilary Talbot Roland, and for those of you new listeners who don't know who I am, I'm an acupuncturist, board certified in treating reproduction, an herbalist, and a meditation teacher. And I've been in this field for over a decade helping couples conceive naturally or supporting them through assisted reproductive technologies like IVF. I'm basically your go-to gal for all things fertility, both East and West, having conversations on this show about the things that your doctor may not necessarily have time to have a conversation about. I believe in providing education to the masses when it comes to creating families so that you can get there with as much ease and the least amount of heartache possible. It is my passion to help ease the burden of fertility challenges for all those that listen and bring you new and exciting innovations in the treatment of fertility. So if you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're an average binge listener, I think you will be delighted with today's episode. It's all about innovation and IVF. The lovely reproductive endocrinologist, doctors Kathy and Kevin Duty, came on to talk about their process of what they call effortless IVF in their clinic helping couples to conceive in Bedford, Texas. They use a device called the InvoCell, which we're going to get into. And they have both been in this field of assisted reproductive medicine for over 30 years and have witnessed many, many changes. Dr. Kathy is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and subspecialty board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She has received multiple recognitions as one of Fort Worth's top docs, as well as one of Texas's super doctors. Dr. Kevin is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and a subspecialty board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility as well. Dr. Kevin has received multiple honors as one of Fort Worth's top doctors, one of Texas's super doctors, and one of the best doctors in America for the last several years. In 2017, Dr. Kevin was recognized with the Resolve National Infertility Association's Hope Award for achievement and recognition of his contributions. While Dr. Kevin was serving as president of the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, he was instrumental in updating the SART National Summary data to assist patients in making informed decision about their medical care. Dr. Kevin was also recognized as Microsoft Physician of the Year in 2004. And they're married, which I think is super cool. You can check out their extensive bios on the homepage for this episode. We got into the specifics about how ICSI evolved and how it's possibly de-evolving in the field of art and the beauty of mistakes in medicine and the specifics of their process of effortless IVF, which they think helps give a woman back her life when it comes to all those appointments and medications. And in my opinion, their use of the InvoCell helps to make IVF as close to natural as possible and maybe even a little bit less invasive. So if you're someone that has hit a wall in terms of the all-natural route to conceiving, or if you're over the age of 35 and just starting out on this conception thing and looking to check out your options, I highly, highly recommend you have a listen. 
And if you've been scared to try IVF because of all of the pharmaceuticals, appointments, and financial drain, you definitely owe it to yourself to take a listen and see if you're a candidate for effortless IVF or the use of the InvoCell device. This conversation might just spark a different conversation than the one that you've been having at home with your partner. On to the show. Good morning, doctors Kathy and Kevin Duty. Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. We're so excited to have you on the show this morning. We're glad to be here. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm just going to start right away with the questions because I know there's a lot to cover. But first, I just, I'm always curious how reproductive endocrinologists come to specialize in this unique form of medicine. Can you tell our listeners what drew you into this world of assisted reproductive technologies? Sure. I think for me, I really... I loved that moment when parents were holding their baby for the first time. And um, even though we really didn't do a lot of infertility in our residency training that was really covered in fellowship, I thought it was sad that couples were having difficulty getting pregnant. And IVF was just in its infancy at that point. And I thought it was going to be a, a field that was open to a lot of change, the potential to have a long-term involvement with a couple different than just a woman coming in once a year to see you for her annual exam and hopefully help to bring some happiness. That's beautiful. And I came into it a little a little differently. So I was your typical medical student rotating through different clinical rotations, trying to decide what I was going to specialize in. And I was leaning towards general surgery, but I did do an elective with reproductive endocrinology, and I immediately knew that this is what I wanted to do. It's a field that that combines procedures, laboratory, the patient elements, et cetera, and every patient is a challenge. As Kathy said, it's not like general obstetrics where there's a lot of routine. Every patient has a problem, and, and it's quite evident whether you can solve the problem or not. So sounds like it just kind of hooked you. It's a little slightly unexpected. It was very unexpected. <laughs> uh, well, my specialty in fertility was very much the same way. It was a calling in every sense of the word. <laughs> you had asked me prior, I thought I would treat them athletes as an acupuncturist, but you're right. Seeing that, seeing birth and then just seeing the, the mother with their child and that, that race of that, you know, however many years it takes for them to get there. I don't think there's anything quite as rewarding as that on the planet, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. You have a center for assisted reproductive reproduction care, which you call CARE, and that's in Bedford, Texas. And then you have a satellite office in Fort Worth where you do some monitoring. But your CARE facility has an outstanding number of firsts for your geographical location, which is one of the many reasons that I wanted to bring you both on the show. Um, And I'm going to run through them real quick just so that our listeners know why it's important to be listening to you. You had the first ICSI's pregnancy in your geographical area. You were the first to successfully implement a blastocyte culture system, which is huge. And you were the most experienced practice in your area offering what you call effortless IVF, which is about half the cost of traditional IVF, in my understanding, due to the lower doses of medication and minimal monitoring that you employ. And you were also the first in the world to use the InvoCell device in that blastocyte embryo transfer. And you even trained the doctor in Virginia who recently helped the first same-sex couple both carry their baby, which is super exciting. So do you guys just like wake up every morning and look at each other and are like, what, are we, what else are we going to do first? <laughs> not, not exactly. No. <laughs> no. 
it's quite a few accomplishments. I think we're always trying to do things better for our patients, and, and that brings us to different things. And medicine is rarely static. You know, I think you always need to be looking towards the future. You can't, you know, I think if one is practicing medicine the same way for 10, 15, or 20 years, there's a problem. Really, medicine evolves, and it's important to be a part of that. I agree completely. And, and you guys have been practicing for medicine quite some time. I mean, you're, you know, not to date you, but your undergrads were in the 80s, right? So we're not just talking to somebody who just graduated medical school and has this idea about how keen that would be. I mean, you are definitely evolving with the times, which I think is super important, especially in the art procedures. I, I want to circle back around to all of these great things that you guys have brought to this world, because I know some of our listeners are really educated on the assisted reproductive technology realm. Some are just starting to scout it out for possible solutions to their challenges. And I just kind of want to go one by one and have you explain in detail so everybody listening understands how groundbreaking these advances are. So Dr. Kathy, can you explain the difference between or tell our audience, educate them what ICSIS and IVF is exactly and what the difference is between the two? Sure. So IVF is in vitro fertilization. It means that the egg is fertilized outside the body. Early on in, in IVF, it was evident that men with severe male factors faced a very difficult challenge. They had very few moving sperm, uh, such that the sperm was not capable of entering the egg on its own, and a variety of different techniques had been attempted. And ICSI was probably one of the first major breakthroughs, I would say, that we uh, we witnessed. And ICSI means intracytoplasmic sperm injection, so the placement of a single sperm into the egg. So it's a fertilization technique that can be used in, in IVF. And I still remember being at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine meeting that year when the first reports came out. And it was just, it was groundbreaking. Uh, it made a chill go through your body to think that you could really change things. And Kevin actually traveled with our embryologist. So I'll let him tell you that part. But I will say that uh, one of the personal wonderful things that came out because of ICSI is that my younger brother had been in a car accident at age 18 and he's a paraplegic. And um they were unable to get pregnant because of a severe sperm problem. And they live up in the Seattle area. And so my nephew, Ian, who is now in college and doing wonderful, was one of, not our first, but he was one of the first uh, that we uh, had. So I have a very personal, happy story for that. But I'll let Kevin share his journey uh, with our embryologist. Sure. As Kathy said, it was uh, really a groundbreaking thing. It, this is something that was not invented here. This was uh, invented in, in Brussels. And it, it was quite by accident. Uh, as Kathy said, there, there were a number of techniques that were being attempted to achieve fertilization with severe sperm issues, including something called subzonal insertion, where a few sperm would be placed uh, underneath the covering of the egg, the eggshell, the zona pellucida. And uh, Jean Piero Palermo uh, had an accident and, and he went a little bit too far and he injected the sperm directly into the egg. He didn't tell his mentor, but he, he put the uh, uh, egg in the incubator and then uh, lo and behold, it had fertilized and developed. And then he, he, he was the one that, that really invented this. So I 
had the opportunity to hire an embryologist in the United States that had some uh, experience with micromanipulation in cattle. Uh, they were doing embryo splitting, uh, dividing embryos back in the day, and he was getting married and moving to Dallas, and he just a good opportunity. So I, of course, hired him. We went to Brussels and learned the technique and came back, and we were able to implement it successfully right off the bat. Wow. So you guys were right there when it all started. That's exciting. And am I understanding that correctly? Did you guys have a hand in creating your nephew? We did. Wow. What yeah. a special relationship. Oh my yes, goodness. We did. We did. It was uh, very exciting. Wow. So can you explain exactly to what an InvoCell device is to our, our audience and why implementing a blastocyte culture system increased success rates? Because I think there's a lot of magic in that. <laughs> So I'll start with this. So the InvoCell device is a plastic capsule. Some people have likened it to the size of a sh and shape of a champagne cork. And it's an incubator. So it allows us to be able to have the fertilization and embryo development occurring a little bit more naturally within the woman's body. So the egg and sperm are mixed together and placed in the device. And at the time of egg retrieval, and the device is then immediately transferred into the a woman's vagina, and she's able to provide the right environment, the right temperature environment, the right atmosphere uh, for, for the embryo development. Wow. You know, you touched on the, the blastocyst story, not just because of endocell, but just that we were the first to really implement blastocyst transfer. And I, I think it's important for patients to understand why that really makes sense in terms of the timing to put the embryo into the body, because it really reflects what happens um, naturally in, in the woman's body. You know, at the time of ovulation, the, and the tube picks up the egg and the sperm fertilizes it at the very end of the fallopian tube. And that's going to spend about five days cleaving, dividing, and moving ever closer to the uterine cavity. So it enters the uterus, it enters the womb at the blastocyst stage. So being able to transfer at that point is really the closest we can get to what should be happening uh, naturally for the woman. Right. And I, I know just, for, I've been in this field for about 10 years. And I know, unfortunately, Florida is sometimes late to the game in a lot of things from fashion to medicine. And, you know, it was only a couple years ago when all of the clinics in my area started transferring at blastocytes. So a lot of times I was recommending that my patients go out of state because the success rates were so dramatically different of inserting a five-day blastocyte versus a three-day embryo. And I, I think that that was something that a lot of patients didn't quite understand that, you know, if it could make it to five or six days, that you had a, a lot higher chances of it continuing to progress. So in the InvoCell, does that, are you doing, I'm sure with, with same-sex couples, you're doing some, are you doing some sort of ICSI or is it really kind of taking the place of IUI where natural selection is at play? We don't do ICSI as part of the um, effortless IVF uh, process with the endocell. Um, the sperm does enter the egg naturally. So in this scenario where donor sperm is being used, we ask the couple to select a, a specimen that would be used for intracervical insemination so that we can do a sperm prep on it prior to placing the sperm into the into a test tube with the eggs before we transfer the eggs into the inner chamber of the InvoCell. So ICSI is, is not utilized. It is 
uh, allowing natural selection to occur. Wow. So ICSI has been used with the device. We don't think that the InvoCell is the best way to, to do ICSI. Um, part of the quality control is being able to make sure that the egg has normally fertilized and, and has not degenerated following the actual intracytoplasm experim injection, and, and the InvoCell really doesn't lend itself to that. So it does take the place of IUI for sure. Uh, we do use the InvoCell in our effortless IVF in patients that have mild to moderate male factors, but, but severe sperm issues really are best treated with conventional IVF ICSI. I think that's great. A while back, I had Dr. Paul Turek on the show, which I'm sure you know Dr. Turek and his advances. And we were talking about ICSI and what a great advance it was, but then that there were some clinics, because I know some clinics had moved solely to using that, and then some that are starting to move away from it and really kind of embracing natural selection again in these procedures, which is what you're doing with the Invacel. And I think that that's beautiful, and especially for costs too. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Natural selection is very, very important. So it's better to to allow a little bit of competition and have the fittest sperm win the race and, and fertilize the egg. Uh, we actually did a study looking at the uh, success rate of those clinics that do ICSI on all patients compared to those that apply an algorithm and use ICSI uh, only in selected patients. Um, and this is data that we got from the National registry, the SART registry. Um, and what we found is that those clinics that, that uniformly did ICSI actually had a lower success rate, lower live birth rate. And there was a, a, a significant difference in the, in the neonatal mortality, those babies that died in the first month of, of births uh, after birth. So it's probably better to, to allow the natural com- competitive process when you can do it. I love that. I love that you went back and studied that after the fact that it had been in use. I think that that's important just because we develop something that allows, you know, children to come into the world. And and especially you being able to attest to that with your nephew doesn't mean that it's applicable for everybody. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that. Not all doctors are cut that way. (laughs) So let's talk about your effortless IVF. You train doctors all over the world delivering this system, and it's pretty unique in the IVF world. You've even been labeled as a disruptor, which I absolutely love because I think that that's important Uh, in humanity. We can become like sheeples, right? (laughs) Even in medicine, right? It can kind of be like this repetitious thing instead of looking at everybody like the individual that they are, which your system seems to take into account. And it's reducing costs. It's reducing appointments, which I think is maybe the greatest burden for some of my patients. And the medications that you put into your body are much less. How did you come up with this? How did you make that possible? When we were first approached, and I think it was around 2012 or 2013, by InvoBioscience to look at the InvoCell um, device, both Kevin and I were intrigued. I think, one, like he said, in terms of its capability of being a vaginal incubator, but also because we thought it had the possibility of reaching the goal of decreasing the cost of IVF by about 50%, which was something that we had been trying to come up with a a way to do that. And I think it's important to realize that in our effortless IVF, we're not doing a minimal stimulation. We're doing an appropriate stimulation for the woman based on two factors, and that is her egg count, which is determined by her AMH level. So AMH, anti-mullerian hormone, is made by the ovary, and it's another way to look at um, the number of potential 
eggs for the near future, just like you can see those small follicles on ultrasound, as well as her body weight. And so we looked at women having, they needed to weigh less than 190 and have less than a BMI of 35. So these women are actually very appropriate candidates for that kind of lower range stimulation. Additionally, they we needed to see an AMH level over, over 0.8. So it was really those factors that sort of led us down the path to try to try this idea. Okay. So an AMH that needs to be higher than 0.8, which is, and I have to say, in my mind, I was thinking that it might even be higher than that. So that's not that bad. And then a weight that is a body weight that is lower than 190 pounds. Yeah. Additionally, the BMI of 35, that's the two together are really critical factors. Okay. And is it about, can you get that cost down to about half of the the average U.S. mean for an IVF, which I think is around 25000 at this point, right? Well, IVF costs are certainly very geographic. And so the cost of an IVF cycle in New York City, I'm sure, is quite different than it is in Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, but it's approximately half the cost of a cycle here in Texas. I think a cycle here in Texas is probably around... 15 to 17,000 or so. So significantly less, and they get this opportunity to kind of incubate their own embryo. Right. And it, and as you said, it's uh, it's less time consuming. It's definitely more streamlined from a patient standpoint. For working women, they're not having to have as many office visits during the stimulation cycle. So it's just an easier process all the way around. Okay. So there's not as much monitoring then. And there's not like, you know, every other day of ultrasounds is what you're saying. Right. There's no, there's no blood monitoring at all. And then we, we do one sonogram after the stimulation has begun on, on the 10th day to determine when the trigger and egg retrieval will be. So to, to, depending upon the stimulation type, uh, they, they're either going to have a total of two or three sonograms before that, like as Kevin said, before the uh, day of trigger is determined. And to kind of continue along that line of thinking, we also developed a effortless frozen embryo transfer cycle, which has zero sonograms done prior to the embryo transfer, um, which we're pretty excited about. The woman is instructed to begin her estrogen supplementation with the onset of her menstrual cycle. Um, she calls in and speaks to the IVF coordinator and the embryologist to determine what day she wants her transfer to be on. She does need a minimum of 12 days of estrogen before she begins her progesterone injections. We went back and looked at our first 60 frozen embryo transfers and compared that to what we see with our more traditional frozen transfer cycles, which have several sonograms, and the outcomes are quite uh, similar. They're pregnancy right not not determined to be an ongoing one yet at this point. We haven't looked at the data that closely, but it was 59% with our frozen transfer cycles. So we think that, again, very different way of looking at it, things that we always routinely do as physicians, uh, these small little manipulations that we make may not have as much impact as we think they do. But like you said, a huge impact on the patient's life if they're able to go through a treatment cycle and it's less visits, it's less stressful, it's uh, it's an easier way to stay in the game for the long term to wind up, yeah, I think, being successful. I agree. So that's great. You've got a 59% success rate then with your frozen embryo transfers with no monitoring. 
And we're typically only transferring one embryo in the vast majority of patients. I love that. So I have twin stepsons. <laughs> I have four stepsons, but I have twins are my youngest and they're amazing. They're awesome. Twins are great. But I will say that I've observed this kind of nonchalant attitude about, well, I'll just, I'll just put two embryos in. And, you know, at that point, I feel like it's my responsibility to have a very real conversation about what it means to raise two children at once, financially speaking, but the, more importantly, the risk that's put on the life of the mother. And while there's no data to my understanding that you have better success rates with a take-home baby putting in one embryo versus two or one blastocyte versus two, I, I think that that you would agree that there's not a lot of data that points to that. It just seems intuitively as if it, the body would handle one better than two. Am I wrong in this? No, <laughs> Am I biased? I quit? <laughs> you're absolutely correct. I mean, I, the difference for those good prognosis patients, so women under the age of 38, mathematically, you'd have to increase your odds somewhat, but typically it's maybe between eight and 10% difference in terms of whether or not they get pregnant, but they're multiple rate goes from about 2% to as high as 40%. So I off, I mean, I often tell patients, gee, there's a huge price one would pay. And I don't mean financially. I mean, like you said, it's, it, it is not just the pregnancy risks, as Kevin mentioned, you know, I mean, your baby's more likely to be warm preterm, more likely to spend time in the intensive care unit, uh, more likely to have lifelong uh, disabilities related to being part of a multiple pregnancy, greater risk of, of death in the first month and year of life. But then there's the psychosocial issues of raising two children, parenting two children. I mean, let's face it, one at a time is, ours are 11 years apart, and I find that stressful at times. But it brings up so many factors, and it just should not be a goal that we are ever trying to create a multiple. And I think as physicians, you know, it's really our it's our job, it's our responsibility to be the voice of reason and to point out to patients when they say, gee, but I'd like twins and a boy and a girl would be great, that you know, that's really probably not the best path to go down. The uterus just isn't really well designed to carry more than one. And so the risks of cerebral palsy are, are several fold increased. And there's an increased correlation with autism for IVF twins. It's just not the best way to go. And, and that's the advantage of blastocyst culture. And that's why we implemented it is that you're able to better discern which embryos are more likely to implant successfully and make a pregnancy so that we can transfer fewer and, and decrease those risks. I like that a lot. And I, now I'm starting to understand why your method's been branded the more natural IVF approach, because it is closer to mother nature and kind of what she designed for our bodies. Not that multiples aren't possible in some women, but two years ago, I was in New York City visiting and across like the ticker on the news, it came across that there were the most sets of twins in a kindergarten class ever in a public school in New York City. And my husband and I looked at each other and we went, that's IVF right there. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. A few years back, I was I was uh, giving some talks in India, and I was visiting an IVF clinic, and they had a big display on their on their wall as you entered that they were the first clinic in India to have quintuplets. And I'm thinking this is not something you should be bragging about. You shouldn't commemorate that one. No, 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 no. I've I've seen that where prior to the AMA saying that they should only, you know, standards were to implant two where there were multiples implanted and they took and the mother almost lost her life and was on bed rest in a hospital for months on end. And, and she was a physician. She was an, you know, and it was like her whole 
life turned upside down? You know, how do you take care of, you know, four babies and then go work in a hospital? Right. right? We're not designed to do that. No, <laughs> fight or flight would never turn off. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the aspect too of breastfeeding and caring for your children. You know, caring for one newborn is, is hard enough, but you know, making a, a sturdy milk supply and being able to have enough skin to skin contact, like that's quite overwhelming. And I think that's something that if you've never experienced one child, you just can't really be told that. <laughs> and then there, there's the sleep deprivation and that's compounded and that affects you know, your whole, your whole mood and psyche. So inevitably yes. patients who've had twins, when they come back for another baby and, you know, we look at pictures and chat a little bit, they almost 99.9% .9 of the time say, I'm only putting one in this time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The struggle is real. And of course they're worth it like any other child. And there's some great nuances about them. It's fun to watch how different yet the same they are. But um, I appreciate you having this conversation and opening this up for our listeners to have with their partners to dialogue because it is quite different, shall we say. <laughs> Can you talk about maybe who effortless IVF is not for besides the AMH and the weight? Are there any pathologies or uh, diagnoses that would kind of take a woman out of the running for this? Well, the severe male factors Kevin mentioned uh, would be the other if you want embryo biopsy, if you're testing for a disease, we wouldn't do that as part of the effortless process. Right. And, and obviously, you have to be a general candidate for IVF. If you've got fibroid tumors that are distorting the uterus, th those types of things need to be addressed prior to, prior to doing treatment. Whether it's effortless or conventional IVF, those are, it's true. Okay. And is there anything that I've missed about the effortless IVF procedure that you want our listeners to know? You know, I, I think it might be useful just to discuss what we do from a laboratory standpoint and distinguish it or contrast it to a conventional IVF process so that patients can understand really how, how the, the process is streamlined and, and, and why, it's, why we can offer it at, at such a reduced cost. So, so normally, when, when one does an egg retrieval, one places the eggs in an incubator for about four hours and then the embryologist would take them out and expose the, them to sperm, place them back in the incubator for about two hours, take them out again, take the eggs out of the Petri dish, put them into another Petri dish with, with new media, goes back into the incubator overnight, and the next morning it's checked to determine which eggs have fertilized, and then those might be sorted out and placed in different dishes, and then the fertilized eggs would then be removed and evaluated periodically throughout the five-day time frame of embryo culture. With the effortless IVF and the InvoCell, once we get the eggs, we mix them with the sperm very briefly, five minutes, so that the sperm can attach to the cells surrounding the eggs, and the eggs are immediately then placed into the device and into the vagina. So that's, that's it from a laboratory standpoint for the next five days. And then when the patient comes back, the device is removed and, and the developing embryos are identified and either transferred or frozen for long-term storage, shorter long-term storage. From a laboratory standpoint, it's, it's much, much simpler. And it doesn't seem to impact all that, all that evaluation and interventions in the laboratory doesn't really seem to be helpful in terms of pregnancy rate. In fact, we, we think that the body serves as a more natural incubator for the for the eggs and embryos because of the temperature environment. So the laboratory incubators have been designed with quality control in mind so that they maintain a very tight 
37 degree, 98.6 degree temperature, but that's not, that's not normal. So we know that, that all mammals have a diurnal variation. It's, it's at a low point in the morning when you get first get out of bed, you have muscle activity, you start to generate heat, the temperature goes up throughout the day um, and then doesn't fall until the evening when we start to, when we start to reduce our activities. And, and additionally, we know that once a woman ovulates and she starts to produce progesterone, that the entire body temperature set point is, is raised. And, and none of those variances or fluctuations are taken into account with the laboratory incubators. You know, we, we tend to see the embryos that are developing well in the InvoCell device tend to be more advanced than the, than the blastocysts that are cultured in the traditional electromechanical devices in our laboratory. I never thought about that. I never thought about the variance in temperature. And I mean, this is kind of out there and a little esoteric, but I wonder if that fractal actually makes the human that grows out of that blastocyte more resilient to the change. I think so, right? We, we, we get stronger with stress. <laughs> right. And, I mean, it, and, it, and again, it reflects what happens naturally in our bodies. That's how the embryo is normally developing. That is the environment it's in. I always say that that complex organic systems they they like variants, especially predictable variants. So we have, uh, you know, I look outside my window right now and I see that this time of year there are no leaves on the trees. So if we had the same amount of sunshine, the same amount of rain, same temperature every day of the year, what we would see outside our our windows would be very very different. I'm not saying we wouldn't have life, but it wouldn't be the same wouldn't be the same as what we have today. That makes so much more sense, you know, taking it back to just the, the earth and its rhythms and our rhythms and, you know, human bodies are organized chaos, let's face it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> There's, you know, so many things happening every second in our body. Sometimes not so well organized chaos. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> oh, okay. So thank you for explaining that. I think that that actually sheds the most light on why it's so different, not just the monitoring and the amount of drugs, but the capacity that that has to be the closest to a natural pregnancy with some assistance. It really is. We were shocked when we, when we were seeing fully hatched blastocysts on the morning of day five. And, and again, you, you just don't see that in, in the conventional laboratory environment. Well, and I like I like that this was kind of not purposeful, almost mistaken. And like you explained with the physician in Brussels, you know, ICSIs being sort of a mistake. I mean, antibiotics were a mistake, and you know, I, and I believe the weight method in Japan of like letting the uterus return to homeostasis was a mistake, as they were looking for medium to culture in, right? Yeah. Yes. And, and then they realized their success rates went up if they just let the uterus return to its normal state after the retrieval. So it's great that you guys are aware enough and paying attention to mistakes and they're, they're turning out rather beautifully. And, and so I'm going to give you a story about how this InvoCell device was invented. So Claude Renew, uh, the inventor, was, was working as an embryologist at a program in Paris, and they had just done an egg retrieval. They collected and processed the sperm, and the, there was a storm and the power went out. And so the incubators at that time, this was 33 years ago, there, there was no backup power. And so he improvised. And so he, he got a tube that we would normally use to freeze sperm. And he placed the eggs and the media and the sperm in that little vial. Uh, and he wrapped it with some film and he placed it into the, the patient, the woman's vagina, with the expectation that perhaps the power would come back on and 
15 or 30 minutes. Well, it didn't. Um, but two days later, it did come back on and, and the woman came back in and he took out the, the little cryo tube and lo and behold, the eggs had fertilized and, and been dividing. And so that, that was a total happenstance, which I think is how some of the best inventions are, how they're created. Wow. Well, and I, I don't know. Do you think that that's happenstance? Necessity. <laughs> Do you think there's something else better? Well, necessity, yes. But yeah, I just, what an amazing thing when you let, you come up with a creative solution and you relinquish control and then you get this outcome that you never could have dreamed of. And that wasn't the perfect device. And so he, he did a series of, of uh, patients and and had some success, but there was some contamination of the media and air bubbles within the, so there were some limitations of that improvised device, but it, it led to the, the design and the development of one that's specifically produced to, to be able to do this well. So last, but certainly not least, because of this invention, this has been a huge win for same-sex couples that you've had a hand in training that doctor in Virginia, where both women were able to be a part of carrying this child. How did that make you feel? Excited. I think that, um, I think as you said, that this story has opened up new avenues for same-sex couples. And I think our couple that made themselves so open and available um, to talk about their story really advanced IVF options for all all couples, same-sex, heterosexual couples. They really brought awareness to change. Of course, the ability to both play a part in the early development of their child, I, I think, allows a special bond for both moms with the baby and between the mothers as a couple. So it, it's a unique situation. Right. And and so special because, you know, heterosexual couples not even being able to experience this. But yeah, I just think that that's amazing. And it's such a testament to where science has gone. And the Invisel, is it Am I right in thinking that it's been about 10 years? I mean, it's 33 in the making when you talk about its original advent, but in terms of being available in the U.S. and testing in the FDA, I think it was around 10 years is what I surmised. So it's only been approved by the FDA since November of 2015. So it's, so it's been out for three years, but uh, you're, you're right. It was in development for that. The initial clinical studies, uh, they weren't able to do the extended culture that we were able to do, but the initial three-day culture was done and, and published in, in 2012 out of Columbia, Bogota. Okay. I think that that's important because I think, you know, couples want to know how long has this been used and how safe is it? And it's- and just to touch a little bit on that point, we sort of skipped over that we did a comparative trial in the very beginning. So we took 40 women under the age of 38 that met all the other criteria that we talked about. And on the day of their sonogram to determine day of trigger and day of egg retrieval, at that point, we randomized them. And half had a conventional IVF and half had um, the endocell. And we saw no difference in the pregnancy rate and the outcomes for those couples. And we presented that. It was subsequently published. And that really, I think, was sort of the, um, the beginning for us to allow us to see when we we didn't just enter into offering this without uh, really feeling confident um, that it was a safe and effective treatment for many, not all, but many infertile couples. Thank you for mentioning that. I did run across that study. And I remember reading it when I was preparing for this episode and thinking, okay, the outcomes are the same, but 
that piece about the variance and temperature and challenge and stress and what that does, I mean, that is something that I don't know that you could, I mean, potentially, yes, maybe you could measure that 10, 20 years from now when you have enough InvoCell babies running around against just traditional IVF in terms of resilience. But how do you really, you know, take that as one variable for emotional resilience? But I think that there, there's some importance in that, that people would want to consider. Yeah. Our prediction is that actually this lesson, this is a lesson that we've learned from the InvoCell that will probably get back into our IVF laboratories and that that in the future incubators will be designed to more closely mimic the natural temperature fluctuations. So are you involved in any other groundbreaking projects that you can talk about? (laughs) 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 Any new surprises on the horizon? We're working on something for for recurrent implantation failure, actually, that's, I think will be an interesting story as it inf- unfolds. Oh, lovely. Well, I know that that is such a, a heartbreaking thing to have to endure when you're going through fertility challenges, you know, having multiple implantation failures or even, you know, early stage miscarriages. So I think that that is definitely an underserved part of our medicine. So great. We'll have you back on the show when you <laughs> hit that ground news. <laughs> Okay. If you had one piece of advice, each of you, for couples that have been struggling to conceive for six months or longer, what would it be? My piece of advice would be to realize that one, you're not alone and that there is help, there's options. Don't give up. Seek, particularly when we start looking at women who are mid-30s and older, be proactive. Seek out the options in your area. Find a reproductive endocrinologist. um, Get evaluated read, become knowledgeable. I love it when patients come in and they've got a list of questions. And I I think that in this area of medicine, the more informed you are as a patient, the more proactive you are, the more likely you are to be ultimately successful. Yes. Don't get discouraged. Don't, don't be afraid to try and fail. You know, sometimes it can take more than one, one time to to get pregnant. And unfortunately, sometimes there are patients that are so discouraged by, by failure that, that they don't continue to, to do treatment, even when we think that they would almost certainly get pregnant um, if they continued. And that's, and that's one reason that perhaps the effortless IVF may be better than, than less aggressive options such as clomid and intrauterine insemination because the success rates are so much higher that some some women go through these IUI treatments and they don't get pregnant and they're so discouraged. They just don't have the emotional energy to continue. Right. And I think the in socialized countries where IVF is paid for, the, the average is 2.5 times that the couple gets through it. And that's not financial. That's mental, emotional impact, right? Exactly. Yeah. When I saw those numbers years back, I was surprised but it's understandable. Infertility is a journey. And um, as Kevin said, the fear of failure is um, definitely a major hurdle that we need to somehow help patients overcome. I agree. And I, and I agree with you, Dr. Kathy, Duty, that the, my fertility challenge patients are some of the most educated patients that hit my door. They know so much. They've done so much research oftentimes, and that's just a testament to how bad they want something. And and I think that's great, but I think more importantly is to the piece about not being able, not being fearful to fail because as a parent, you're going to fail right? oh sometimes. I always, right? I always say they don't come with an instruction manual. I wish they had. And I never got the sleeping baby model either that I ordered. So, right. 
No, no, they do not. Uh, so sometimes I think this is just preparation for the, the real work of parenting, right? But, you know, you mentioned a lot of uh, very educated women. I think it's also difficult, the feeling of you lose control when you go through fertility treatment because you're being told you have to be here at this time. And so in a, in a conventional IVF cycle where you've got a multitude of appointments, it is hard to give up control. And I often think, gee, if I were a patient, my life is so busy. How would I ever fit that, fit that in? And you know, right. to go back to no, the no blood tests, no monitoring like that, we can really make those appointments very convenient. You know, you could see, we can see someone at the end of the day if they want that almost, you know, shortly before we're closing because the decision is made solely on the sonogram findings. And so right then and there, you get your instructions, you plan, and they move on. And they're, you know, it, it is an easier way to, um, you know, I think fit fertility care into their life. I like that. So because of this ease, one question I didn't ask you is, do you see a lot of uh, patients from out of state? Is this something that where people will travel to you? We have. Okay. So if you're listening, this could be really more like a vacation because you're not going to have tons of monitoring, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Just go visit the beautiful state of Texas, be under the wonderful care of Dr. Kathy and Kevin Duty, and experience what effortless IVF is all about. We'll make sure that we have links to all of the studies that we referenced, as well as um, your clinic in Texas. And you can find those at where Fertile Minds is housed at ladypotions.com forward slash episode 59. Thank you both so much for what you've brought to the world, my goodness, um, and for giving me your time. You guys, I'm sure, are very, very busy. So getting up early and, and sharing an hour of your time with our listeners, I couldn't be happier for them. So thank you. Thank you very thank much you. for having us. Absolutely. Bye for now if you're listening. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.